If you're new with us, we're uh, studying the Gospel of Luke. It's been a joy to do so for several weeks now. And we're in Luke 20, which is the beginning of a series of controversies that Jesus has with the religious authorities that uh, precede the crucifixion. A very significant uh, portion of material we'll be looking at here. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord's illumination. Father, we pray now that you would, as we open up your word, you would open up our hearts, our minds, to behold wonderful things from your word. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. You know, debates can be really fun when the topics are rather insignificant. Feel free to answer out loud. Which is better, summer or winter? Which is better, a Chick-fil-A sandwich or a Popeye's chicken sandwich? Oh, some intensity there. Yeah. What's the right way to pronounce G-I-F? Gif or gif? Over or under? Should toilet paper hang over or under the roll? Oh, 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 strong opinions. Which is better, the American accent or the British accent? (laughs) The nine said the exact same thing. Uh, That's the only thing they have on us, really, right? It's It's just the accent. Which is worse, a quiet introvert or a loud extrovert? Mixed feelings on that one. Yes or no, would you give up three fingers for a million dollars? Some of you are, yes, sure. Uh, finally, yes or no, does pineapple belong on pizza? No. <laughs> well, as you can tell, some, some debates can be uh, quite fun uh, when the topics aren't uh, all that serious. But when you ratchet up the uh, significance of, this, of the debate, uh, then the intensity level changes. Now, while some people want to argue about everything, it seems, uh, not everything is worth uh, time and attention. Paul tells Timothy to avoid foolish controversies. But there are certain controversies, certain issues, that really demand our attention, demand careful thought. And as we think about who Jesus is and we think about his teaching, even though what he says is uh, quite controversial, uh, we need to give Uh, significant time and attention to what he says because of the ramifications of everything that Jesus says. And what we see in the Gospels is that we have uh, one group of people that respond with hostility to what Jesus says and another group that responds with humility. And we want to be in the latter category. Now there are six pericopes in a row starting in in Luke 20 verse 1 that deal with a particular controversy. First there is this issue of Jesus' authority in the first eight verses. Then Jesus tells a controversial parable in uh, verses 9 to 19 where the religious leaders understand that that parable was about them, and they don't like that. Then there's a question about paying taxes to Caesar, which is a very heated topic in the day. And then next week we'll look at uh, the the question about marriage and the resurrection. Who will be married in heaven? Uh, Pastor Walter gets to preach that one, and he'll, he'll answer that question for you. And then there's a question about David's son, and then there is the poor widow in the temple. And so Jesus spent some of his final moments teaching. And then the, there's a big discourse about the destruction of Jerusalem, or the, excuse me, the destruction of the temple and the second coming. And so we see that Jesus in uh, 21, 37 to 38, that he's there in the temple teaching. So right before all of the events of the arrest and betrayal and crucifixion, all of these things take place, we've got Jesus here in the temple teaching. 
And what he's teaching is, uh, is again, quite controversial, uh, especially, uh, he's especially opposed by the religious leaders. So let's look at those first three pericopes uh, this morning. There is the controversy over Jesus' authority, a controversial parable, and then a controversy over uh, taxes, okay? Sounds fun, let's go. The issue of Jesus' authority is an issue that actually permeates much of, of, of all of the, the topics that are addressed here. And uh, I think James Edwards is, uh, is on it when he says, the characteristic of Jesus that left most, the most lasting uh, impression on his followers and the greatest cause of offense to his opponents was his exousia, his authority. Now, how has Jesus been exercising authority thus far? Well, one of the ways, of course, was his teaching. We are told that he taught as, uh, with authority, not as the scribes. That he also has authority to do things like forgive sin, raise the dead, calm the sea, feed a multitude with a catfish po'boy, to declare himself Lord of the Sabbath. And most recently, Jesus has had the audacity to ride into Jerusalem, being hailed as the king, and then proceed to go into the temple and cleanse this temple. Now this has got everyone riled up. All of the religious leaders now are, are bothered by this. And so we have Jesus here in verse one, teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel. I want you to imagine that scene for a moment. Jesus has just went to the temple, that which was central in the religious life of the Jews, and he just cleansed it, and then he posts up and starts preaching the gospel. That is, he's preaching about himself. He's the center of the gospel, the new temple where we meet God in Jesus Christ. And again, the religious leaders don't like that, so their first question in verse 2 is, tell us where your authority comes from. Who gave you this authority? This is the Jewish high court here, the chief, the, the scribes, the elders. They exercised political and religious authority. They were involved in both doctrinal and civil matters. They could not execute uh, capital punishment, which is why later we read of Pilate. But they believe Jesus must be eliminated. And so what they want to do is, get, is to shame Jesus, to, to catch him in public, saying something that would be blasphemous, something that would be treasonous. And so they begin with this crowd around, tell us about your authority. Where did you get this? Who do you think you are? You uncredentialed rabbi from a, a backwater town of Nazareth. What gives you the right to cleanse this temple and to preach and tell everybody that you are the Messiah? And you see this issue with Jesus' authority is still the issue today. For so many people, this is the issue. What right does Jesus have to tell me what to do with my money? What gives Jesus the right to demand my worship? Who does Jesus think he is saying he's the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through him. One person once told me, Jesus doesn't care who I sleep with. It's an issue of authority. And the religious leaders want to trap Jesus before this crowd, and they want him to address this particular issue. And so Jesus, in a very Jesus-like way, answers their question with a question. And so he says, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? I think it's worth noting here how Jesus engages these opponents with this use of a question. They're trying to intimidate Jesus with the question. They're trying to intimidate Jesus with their numbers. And often we will find ourselves as Christians being in certain contexts where we feel like we're, we're, we're on defense, where the questions are coming our way 
And, and maybe you just want to put a question back on them instead of being the one on defense. Jesus does this really well. Jesus also engages lost people like this, doesn't he? By asking them good questions. There's a good book called Questioning uh, Evangelism, which is about that very thing of, of learning how to ask people particular questions. What we're basically doing is, is like we're putting a rock in someone's shoe. It's just there nagging them, bothering them the whole day as they think about uh, a particular question, like what makes you believe that? Or how have you come to that conclusion? Or something along those lines. So Jesus doesn't answer them directly. Instead, he poses a question to them about John the Baptist. And he wants to know if they think that John's baptism was from heaven, that is from God, or if it was just something that was invented out of the mind of, of a man. In other words, was John a true prophet or not? And of course, we know he was. He was the one who baptized Jesus earlier in the gospel we read, and, and the Father thundered from heaven, this is my beloved Son, with, with him I am well pleased. So everything that they needed to know was already declared at the baptism of Jesus. When the Father thundered from heaven, you should know that, that, that he's got authority. And so he asked them about John, but they're in a dilemma, because if they answer he's from heaven, but they had not submitted to John's ministry, then uh, they've got a problem. They would be condemned for not listening to John. But if they answer from man, it, they might incite the wrath of the crowd who followed John and who are now following Jesus. And so they, they, get, they huddle up for a moment, and they're trapped, and they don't know what to do. So verse 7, they claim ignorance. So they answer that they did not know where he came from. You see, here's the problem, though. They actually didn't want to know. They didn't want the answer. They weren't interested in the truth. They were interested in losing power. And that's very instructive for us. They're politically motivated, not spiritually motivated. They know that if they uh, answer wrongly, they could lose some of their own political power and influence. And so Jesus, knowing their stubbornness, knowing their motives says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, before we move to this, this next section, I think you see something, again, that's very common in everyday life. Why do some people not follow Jesus? It's quite simply, if you embrace Jesus as Lord, everything in your life changes. And that scares some people. They don't want, to be, they don't want everything to change in their life. The Jerusalem leaders, they didn't want to follow the evidence. They didn't really want to know the truth because they knew the implications of saying Jesus was Lord. They needed to get a new job if they said that. Everything in their life would change. And often beneath people's questions about the faith is actually deep fears and selfish desires. They don't want to give up their immorality. They don't want to give up their power. They don't want to give up whatever it is that's their idol that they know if they say yes to Jesus, they've got to give up. Aldous Huxley, famous philosopher, said the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to morality imposed by God because it interfered with our sexual freedom. He said we really don't want to know the truth because we don't want to change this part of our life. And that's what's going on here with these religious leaders. It's not sexual freedom for them, but it is, it is power. And there are many things that can be idols. So why do some people not want to follow Jesus as Lord? Because everything in their life will change. And I would just say, don't you want to be changed? <laughs> I mean, look at us. I'm, I'm glad the Lord has changed us. And he's continuing to change us. 
And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that we submit every area of our life to him. And that's not a one-time deal, right? It starts as a, as, a, a, as a decision to do that. But every day we are putting our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, saying your way is best, your way is good, right? And so we see here the authority of Jesus being in question. Now, secondly, there is this controversial parable. The parable of the wicked tenants, or better, as uh, Riken puts it, the murder of the owner's son. Now, if we think Jesus was evading the question from these leaders, this parable clears that up as he clearly asserts his power, his authority here. Now, this parable is a, it's a judgment parable. It's very similar to the parable that Nathan, uh, or the kind of thing that Nathan did when he confronted David. You know, after David committed the sin with Bathsheba, Nathan tells this story, and David's like, oh, this is a good story. And then he realizes that it's about him. Uh, <laughs> And that's, that's exactly what's happening here. As Jesus tells this story, verse 19, they perceived that was about them. Now, in David's situation, he repented. We don't know if, if these guys did, unlikely, but that is important to note. They, they could repent. Saul of Tarsus did, and he was a religious leader opposed to Jesus before his conversion. Now, something else to notice about this parable that makes it uh, uh, unique is that it's, it's kind of like an allegory more like an allegory than other parables. And what, what I mean by that is, when we read parables, we usually say, don't press every detail in the parable. Every character in the story doesn't necessarily stand for someone or something. And people have done that through the years with, say, the, like the Good Samaritan, where the innkeeper and everyone is supposed to be someone. Um, and it just ends up being crazy. Uh, like the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul, and you know this stands for the Catholic Church, or this is you know on, on and on and on. But this this parable is more like an allegory in that there's more correspondences with all the figures uh, than in, in an ordinary parable. So you've got several players here involved. First of all, the, the vineyard owner is God the Father. And this vineyard represents Israel. And that's a common metaphor for Israel. Isaiah 5, uh, Psalm 80, that the Lord took Israel out of Egypt and he planted a vineyard. And he wanted Israel to bear fruit, to produce wine. And so we've got this, this story then about a, a vineyard owner, God the Father, this vineyard that represents Israel, and then the, the tenants that were leasing the land represent the religious leaders. That's who Jesus is aiming at in this story. They were supposed to care for this vineyard. They were supposed to raise uh, 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 the, the fruit, and instead they're self-serving. They're not caring for, uh, for people and so on. They're misusing their privileges. And so we read in verse 10, when the time came, the, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to the tenants that he would give some of the fruit. So he wants some of the product, and, and he, he, want, he wants to be paid. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And then somewhat surprisingly, the vineyard owner sends another servant, and he faces the same rejection. He's traded sh uh, shamefully. And then this happens again. A third servant goes, and he's wounded and casts out. So the farmers beat the messengers. They beat these, these, uh, these servants who represent the prophets. Over and over and over again, God sent prophets to Israel. And what did they do but reject the prophets? We read this throughout redemptive history, don't we? Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. Tradition says Isaiah was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple. 
When Nehemiah is retracing the history of Israel in Nehemiah 9, he says that Israel put God's law behind their back and they killed the prophets. And so you see something about the patience of God, don't you? It's a wonder that God didn't stop it from the beginning. But he kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet. And they kept rejecting and mocking and shaming and even killing the prophets. It's also a good reminder to us that we should never be surprised by opposition to God's word. All of history is showing us that's actually normal. And that's why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, he says rejoice and be glad. So they persecuted the prophets before you. That you're in a great company of honor, actually, uh, should you do that. But here it is, the history, the trend, the pattern. God sends messengers, rejection. God sends another one, rejection. So now the vineyard owner decides to send his own beloved son, the final uh, character, if you will, in the story. And that beloved son, of course, is Jesus. He's unique. He's the heir. He's the final servant. And the owner says, surely they will respect the authority of my son. Nope. They kill him. They take him outside the city, thrown outside the walls. And you see here that Jesus is predicting his own death. He's a marvelous storyteller. He's telling a story about his, himself. He's really telling the, somewhat, you could say, the story of the Bible in this parable of this vineyard. And then he says, what happens as a result of this? What will the owner of this vineyard do to these tenants? And he answers, he will come again and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others, others representing the Gentiles, that the gospel will go to the nations as a large majority of Israel will reject Messiah. The gospel will go forth uh, into all the world, and many will receive the Son. They will respect the Son. They will submit to the Son. Well, they don't like this and respond, surely not. And then after the protest, Jesus looks them in the eye, and he cites Psalm 118. Again, the stone that the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, there's an interesting play on words. You can't see it in English, but you can see it uh, in, in the language of the Bible. The word son, ben, and the, for the word stone, aben, that Jesus is the rejected son and the rejected stone. He's the beloved son, the beloved stone. And as we mentioned last week, Psalm 118, in that context, it's outside nations that are posing the threat. They're the enemies to the Davidic king. And here it's Israel's leaders that are actually the enemies of the Messiah. And Jesus is saying here that you will face the, the judgment of God should you reject this stone. You can stumble over him, it can fall on you, but you can't avoid the cornerstone. No one in humanity can avoid him. Either he is the received beloved son, either he is the cornerstone, or he is the rejected stone. And so what is put in front of us is a choice, right? Do you believe Jesus or not? The Father has sent his beloved Son. And if you believe in him, you will be saved forever. Jesus comes in love, offering his life to the world. So don't reject him. See him as the Savior, the cornerstone of your life. Don't do what many people do today and try to dream up their own self-made salvation project. Don't do what others do and, and think God, the owner of the vineyard, is dead. 
or don't just do what they did in this story, try to get rid of the beloved son, not think about these things. No, believe on the son and have life. And knowing this parable indicts them, the leaders attempt to arrest Jesus. They wanted to lay hands, verse 19, on him that hour, but again, they feared the people. They're outraged, but they don't know what to do in this particular moment. That's a very striking story that Jesus tells. Very important story, isn't it? And before we move on to the last portion here, I think it's worth just noting something of the significance of this image of Jesus as our cornerstone. Because this is a beautiful image. Now, if we were in Israel, you would see a lot of stones. Like, we, we live in a, a, a pretty young country. We, we think Radio Shack's old over here. But, but you go to some of these countries that are ancient, you'll see structures made of stone that are still standing. And it's just, just remarkable to, to see this. And the people of that day knew the importance of picking the right kind of stone as your cornerstone. Because everything would rest on that stone, and that stone would give alignment to everything else. It's a beautiful image of Jesus. Build your whole life on Jesus and allow him to direct the whole course of your life and to realize nothing else can be cornerstone except Jesus. He's the only one qualified to do that. If you don't have him, you have no foundation. You have no cornerstone. But if you have him, he answers the deepest questions of life. Think about these questions. Who am I? Who are we? What's our purpose? I would submit to you that Jesus answers all of them as our cornerstone. Who am I? My life is identified and wrapped up in that stone. Who are we? We are stones in God's temple, attached to him. And what's our purpose? As this holy temple is to worship and witness to the glory of our king. You see, if you get Jesus wrong, you get your identity wrong, you get your community wrong, you get your purpose wrong. You get Jesus right, you get it all right. You get your identity right, you get your community right, you get your meaning right. And so is he your cornerstone. Don't try to make anything else your cornerstone. Whether that's sexual pleasure, or money, or beauty, or fame. Everything else is jacked up if you don't get Jesus right. But if you get Jesus right, it doesn't mean your life's perfect, doesn't mean you don't have problems. But, but you, you have seen him rightly, and you begin to see life rightly. Think about how Peter says this. He, he uses the same image when he says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but watch this, but in the sight of God he's chosen and precious. So that's how you see him. We don't reject him, but we see him the way the Father sees him. He's chosen and precious. And maybe you just started exploring Christianity and you just need to keep looking. You need to keep searching. You keep, need to keep looking at Jesus. I told the college students this past week about this old uh, Ford Pinto commercial. Some of you guys in here still remember a Pinto. It was, it was not a very impressive car. Um, it was a little compact car. And uh, they had a, a slogan that said, the closer you look, the better we look. <laughs> Which was not true at all, actually. Uh, that's why the car doesn't exist anymore. Um, and they had a tendency to blow up. Uh, in fact, my family, my dad, I wasn't driving then in the 70s, uh, we drove a Pinto from Kentucky to Detroit two years in a row at Christmas, and the second year it blew up. Uh, the closer you look, though, the better it looks. Not true, not true. But the closer you look at Jesus, the better he looks. The better he looks. Why? Because he's chosen and precious. 
we begin to see him as the Father sees him. You see Jesus rightly, you begin to see your identity rightly, your community rightly, your purpose rightly. All right, finally, and what you all came for this morning, controversy over taxes. <laughs> I knew you woke up this morning and said, I need a muffin and some taxes. Uh, I don't need to talk about taxes. I've been told before going to places, I'm sure you are too, like don't talk religion or politics. And here we get both, all sandwiched together. Um, so it's a parable that Jesus has just told where the leaders want to kill Jesus. And so again, what's their purpose for bringing up this topic? They want to trap Jesus. They want to, to get Jesus in trouble. They actually, verse 20, it says, send spies in to catch him. <laughs> Did you know there are religious spies? <laughs> there are, still are, uh, wanting to, to catch people doing stuff. And so before they ask the question, they, they, they flatter Jesus by saying, we know that you teach rightly. You show no partiality. You truly teach the way of God. Of course, that's true, but they don't believe any of it. But then they ask the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, again, they're trying to force Jesus into an either-or scenario, yes or no. Answer one way, he could be perceived as being a traitor to the Jews. Answer another way, he could be considered a revolutionary against Rome. Either answer, Jesus is in trouble. It's an explosive question. Only problem for them is Jesus is smarter than everyone. <laughs> and it was a real question. In AD 6 to 7, Judas the Galilean contended that paying taxes was insufferable since it was a concession that Caesar was Lord. And it led to a political revolt. So if Jesus says something along these lines, then uh, that would be enough to turn him over to Caesar. But if he agrees it's permissible to pay taxes to Caesar, then, well, he's suggesting that Caesar is Lord. But Jesus knows their hearts. He's not deceived by their craftiness, verse 23. And then he says in verse 24, show me a Daenerys. And he asked, whose image or likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, if you were to look at this coin, on one side of the coin was a bust of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin was an image of his mother, which read Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest. So on one side of the coin, Caesar is Lord. The other side of the coin, his mom's the high priest. That didn't go very well, as you can imagine. That's idolatrous, that's blasphemous. And then Jesus gives them the answer. Give the things that belong to Caesar to Caesar, and the things that belong to God should be given to God. Now, if you've been around the Bible at all or the church, you're familiar with this statement. But when Jesus uttered this, this was really a remarkable statement, and it continues to have tremendous significance, doesn't it? Kent Hughes says, This statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. That's how good Jesus was. They want to trap him? I want to make the most famous statement ever uttered uh, about politics. And he basically says, give to each what they deserve. Obey the government as long as you can, but worship God alone. So Jesus is not opposed to government. He's not an anarchist. God has ordained the family, the government, the church. The state has the right to pay taxes, to, uh, to impose taxes, we have the responsibility to pay them. 
to obey the speed limit and so on. Peter and Paul expand on these concepts even when Nero was in leadership. But we worship God alone. You see here, what Jesus says is not exactly uh, a neat distinction between church and state. Because he subtly implies Caesar isn't God. Caesar is under God. And all rulers and all kings and all presidents are under God. Nations rise and fall under the sovereign hand of God. And that's why we worship God alone. God alone is sovereign. So you could say a summary statement like this. Jesus is saying, the coin bears Caesar's image. Give him the coin. You bear God's image. Give him your life. What's a coin to your life? Yeah, there's a tax. Go ahead. But what are you going to do with your life? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. You're made in his image. That's why we worship him. That's why we, we follow him. There are other things that could be said about government. I'm not going to go through this at this time, including the reason sometimes that we are to uh, practice civil disobedience. There is certainly a category for that in the Scripture if the government prevents us from obeying Scripture or command us to do what Scripture prohibits. In those cases, we obey God rather than man. We've been through those topics before here at IDC. I'm not going to rehash all of that. Only here just to say what a wonderful statement Jesus gives us. Give to Caesar the coin. It's got his image on it. Give God your life. He's made you. Now, how do we conclude all this stuff? There's a lot of verses here. Jesus, my friends, has all authority. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords. And soon Jesus is coming again, and he's going to establish a one-party kingdom in which he will rule with perfect justice and peace. That's our king. The question is, have you or will you submit to his authority? Uh, granted, one day, everybody will. Every knee will bow and confess, tongue confess that he is Lord. What does it mean to, to submit to his authority? I would encourage you to allow Jesus, his lordship, his authority, to change you. To submit every aspect of your life to him. Not Jesus plus my feelings or Jesus plus my tradition, but Jesus, your Lord. Let him have authority over your sex life, over your relationships, over your studies, over your anger problem, over your laziness, over your wallet, over all of it. He's Lord. Allow him to change you and realize that's good for you. And if you're not a Christian, you would say today, Jesus, I want to follow you as Lord. Secondly, allow his authority to lift you. How does Jesus' authority lift us? It reminds us that Jesus not only has the compassion to forgive us, he has the power to do it. He has authority to forgive sins. And therefore, if Jesus says you're forgiven, my friend, you are forgiven. You can't go higher than him. He has all authority. It means when he says, I've got you, he's got you. And that encourages us. We follow a king who has all power. Thirdly, allow his authority to comfort you. He not only has us, he has us forever. As we say in our benediction when we read from Jude, all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forevermore. Jesus has us and Jesus will reign forever. Let's be comforted by that today. That's our king. And finally, allow his authority to embolden you. What did Jesus say before he gave us the great commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go make disciples. 
What gives us the right to go into the world and make disciples? Jesus is our king, and he has all authority, and he sends us. We go with his presence. We go with his confidence. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that Jesus is my king today. And let's ask the Lord today for grace as we seek to follow him, submitting our whole lives to his lordship, to his glory. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that we would not reject the lordship of Jesus, but we would receive that. We would enjoy that. We would know that Jesus is king. He's the best king. He's the only king. And I pray that even this week, Lord, you would change us more into the image of Jesus Christ as we submit our lives to his authority, his dominion. And Lord Jesus, we long for the day in which you come again. We pray that you would strengthen us as we receive opposition the way these prophets received it throughout history. Uh, that you would embolden us, that you would comfort us and encourage us in the work of witnessing to your name. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.